thousand at satsang every night. And the overwhelming majority of those people wanted to see him at close quarters also, so that uh, it was not impossible, of course, to see that many people in the week or so that he was there. So it was set up with with long lines coming in, and each person would come forward, stop, look into his eyes, and he would usually greet them, give them some prashad, and, uh, and give them his darshan. And this was the way in which all of those people saw him. And he was very pleased with the way it went. And I have to say that the people who um, experienced that, the ones that I have talked with, which have been now quite a few, uh, felt that they did not get any bit less than they got the old way. And in fact, maybe more because the master was fully engrossed in giving them the full darshan, not involved in intellectual questions and answers. There was, in Australia, of course, this procedure wasn't followed because there were really not very many people in Australia compared and uh, it was possible to have interviews the old way. But the Americans who were in Australia, people from outside of Australia and New Zealand, uh, did have darshan this way. One of them wrote me a letter, which I was planning to read at satsang at Sanpani Ashram, but I don't think I did. I'm, I'm thinking about it. It seems to me I for I did read it? Okay. Gosh, I don't know which is more discouraging that I couldn't remember having read it or that I thought I hadn't. I don't know. Anyway, never mind. We won't get into that. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, the point is we don't lose. It's a way of giving in a way. It's a way of doing seva. It's a way of helping him. And he, we do expect, you know, large numbers of people at at Saint Bani this summer. We are planning on on uh, five thousand, um, which is at his instructions. It may not be that many, but if we're prepared for that, then we will be able to deal with everyone who comes and give them, help them be in a position to get what they came to get. And the other thing, of course, is the Master is not growing younger physically. He is, he uses the term weakness. Okay? I, I don't personally like that term in connection with him. The Master does not seem to be weak to me. Not now and not ever. I've been present when both Master Kripal Singh and Santa Jabe Singh have been um, physically weak, but they never seemed really weak to me, not at all. But that's the word that he uses, and uh, he, you know, asked me to convey to everyone here and other places also where I have been traveling to be aware of this the physical weakness that is increasing and to um, take it into consideration when we approach him. And one of the things about the having the darshan lines in the way that I describe them is of course they physically involve a lot less exertion on his part and enables him also to course to meet the demands of everyone that is by seeing them which 
when people are disappointed, the master feels that very acutely. He feels their disappointment as though it were his own. So that's what he asked me to do. And I, I think that it is our opportunity to, to help him in this way, that we really will be taking an active part in the furtherance of his mission if we do this, if we happily conform to what he asks of us. You know, the story that this always reminds me of, or that I'm reminded of by that request, is the, uh, the really the heart-rending story from the Bible of the night before the crucifixion, Jesus and Peter and John are in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks them to stay awake and watch with him one hour. And they can't do it. They fall asleep. And he comes back. He wakes them up and asks them again. Can you not watch with me one hour? And they can't. And they fall back asleep. And at the end he says, I'd Sleep on now and take your rest. For the hour has come. And I always, I don't know, you know, I don't think anyone knows what would have been different, what would have happened if they had been able to stay awake. But the Master definitely conveyed that it would have helped him if they could have. And that's, it seems to me, the kind of thing, not comparable maybe in, in heaviness or degree, but along the same lines, when the Master asks us to do something, there is something in it that's important like that. And if we happily go along with what he asks and um, don't constantly wish that everything was the way that it used to be, which is something that I am very prone to do, by the way. I tend to live in the past anyway, and I hate change, generally, and I very much like, in most cases, the way things used to be. And um, I've enjoyed, with Master Kripal Singh, I, I enjoyed very much 1963 experience, where there was never more than a hundred people around him at any one time. Uh, not not at the public meetings when there were were often many more, but in terms of disciples vying for his attention, or at the more intimate sessions, group darshans and so forth, there was never more than a hundred people. And then in 1972, I walked into the American Legion Hall in Virginia. And there were over a thousand people there. It was, you know, I really just about fell over. And I didn't like it one bit. And, you know, you have to adjust. I had to adjust. Life is like that. And this, I said something about this to Millie Prendergast, who was sitting next to me. And she said, well, don't you think you're being a little selfish, dear? <laughs> and I agreed, yes, I was being a little selfish. When the numbers increase, that's a good thing. It means that the Master is reaching all kinds of people who need him, and he will take them up. So we can be grateful for that. I want to re begin by reading a couple of things. Um, First from the Gospel, again the Gospel of Luke. This is sort of in continuation of the things that we said last night. Um, the same themes of uh, the exploding of assumptions, the displacement of the point of view, the radical subversive activity 
of the Word made flesh, all of these will will also be present tonight, but we'll proceed, I, I hope, a little further. This is from Luke chapter 12. One of the company said unto him, I can see, it's okay. Uh, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? I find this particular question very profound. In the Gospel of Thomas, which didn't make it into the Bible, but in many ways is more accurate as regards what Jesus actually said, because it's a lot less literary and polished than the Gospels that are in the Bible. Uh, he's even more direct. Who made me a divider over you? I'm not a divider, am I? There are different ways to understand the concept of dividing, of course, but um, the point is that the Master comes to bring us together. He does not come to take one side or the other. Sanchi refers to this in his last circular letter where he says that when people write to him about their problems with other people, generally they are asking him to say that the ones who write to him are right and the ones who take the other position are wrong. This is what Jesus is saying here. I'm not going to do that. That's not what the Master is here for. So he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. <coughs> and he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? <coughs> if ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies how they grow, they toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, Neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. All of this 
If we remember we were saying last night about the how so much of the spiritual tradition, biblical and otherwise, glorifies the insignificant. God works through the slaves, the nothing people, the babes to whom he has revealed it. And this is in tune with that, you know. Don't worry. You may be a little flock, but the fact is that it was your father's pleasure, his pleasure, to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is yours, no matter how absurd and how weird it may seem to you and to others. The fact is that it is yours. Does not imply, of course, that it's not anyone else's, but it is definitely ours. The attitude that is expressed in that reading, that attitude of not being afraid, fear not, little flock. Remember that Saint, Santa Jab Singh has referred to fear as the greatest sin. Right? And he has also said the principle of Sant Mat is this. Don't be afraid of anybody and don't make anybody afraid of you. Don't intimidate anybody and don't allow yourself to be intimidated by anybody. This is part of what is meant by fear here. Is of course the, the anxious state that we are all in when we think about what's going to happen next. And we don't know what's going to happen next. And the fact is that we can't, we can't add one inch to our stature by worrying about whether we're going to grow or not, which is what Jesus is saying there. And if we can't even do that, he says, what's the point of worrying about things that are really hard to change? It's, uh, I've, you know, I've had some really hard lessons in this. I mean, really hard lessons. Um, some of you, maybe most of you, will remember that I was in the hospital a few years ago with a stroke, okay? And at one point, I was totally paralyzed on my left side. And I couldn't speak right, I couldn't walk right, I couldn't move my left hand. And for a long time, so many hours, I pretended to myself that it wasn't so. I thought, I flopped my arm around, and I said, there, see, I can move it. And I got so I could swing it from, by moving other parts of my body, I could manipulate it so it seemed like I had movement. And I thought this, because it was very important to me, you see, not to be paralyzed. I didn't want to be paralyzed. And if someone had said, um, but suppose you're only paralyzed for 10 minutes, is that okay? I might have said, sure, but, 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 but how do I know it's only going to be 10 minutes? And in any case, no one said that, and I assumed that the future was the present. I did precisely what the Master says not to do, in the reading that we just read. And Sanchi, when I talked to him, defined that as losing faith. Having faith means living the way that the Master explains in the reading that we just read. And that is not given to us as a commandment that if we fail, if we do it and fail, we are then bad guys and undeserving. It's presented to us as a great gift to us to show us how to truly live. How to truly live so that we can get the most benefit out of life. It's for us that it's given, not as a, 
a test so we can then be debarred, you see, from from the kingdom of God which is already promised to us. And the kingdom of God is promised. Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't need to worry about that. You've got it. Now, if you want to make the full use of it, if you want to live in such a way that the kingdom will manifest itself through you and be present as we move about, then this is how to do it. This is part of it. So Master Kripal called, referred to this kind of living as true living. And he used to quote Guru Nanak all the time, Truth is above all, but higher still is true living. And I want to read a little bit from um, the conclusion of a talk he gave with that title. Um, talk was given in the 1963 tour in Basis Hall, Hollywood, California. This is just a very small part of it toward the end. Master says, you'll find the fewer wants we have, the happier we are. So cut down your wants, cut down your desires. Whatever subject you take up, put in more time towards it. You'll become a good scholar, a good scientist, a good lover of God, or good in any line you take up. For that, as I told you, a pure moral life is required. As I told you, truth is above all, and true living is still above truth. A man is known only by how others find him. If you are true, you are helping, you are good, and you set a good example, others will follow you. They will not even give you credit. But they will give the credit to the school to which you belong to the master with whom you are connected. For this, there is one principle to be followed. That principle is, perform no action in secret except prayers. If anything requires secrecy, abandon it at once. Deeds of darkness are always committed in the dark. Do nothing which, after being done, leads you to tell lies. And don't desire evil for anyone, irrespective of his creed or color, even in thought, word, and deed, because thoughts are more potent. Help some poor person, as he is in all, and do not hurt anyone by word and deed. These are the things which go to help us. Always think that the God power is residing within you and watching your every action. This is the first thing. And the second is, don't transcend the commandments given by him for you to live up to. If you do that, Kabir says, you are not to be afraid in the three worlds, here and hereafter. With all these things, devote regular time, mornings and evenings, to your practices and do it fully, just like a child who has no wisdom. Simply out of love, go to the lap of the father or the mother. Leave off all your wisdom and leave everything aside. Go lovingly. In the evening, remove your evil daily life. And like a strict judge, Try to weed out all the imperfections that you have from day to day. Even robbers have become saints, I tell you. I met with such like robbers who were the heads of the dacoits. They took initiation and now they are putting in six hours a day in meditation. They even brought other bandits and recommended them for initiation. So man can change. There's hope for everybody. Every saint has his past and every sinner a future. Mind that, see no evil, hear no evil, talk no evil, and think no evil. 
If you follow these things, you will progress from day to day. And especially those people who are made group leaders. They should set an example for others who are coming on the way. They have not yet become masters, I tell you. We are on the way. We may be selected as a master. It is for God, I mean, to worry about whom he should give to continue the work. It is not our job, you see. We may be selected as a master, but we should live up to what the masters say. Those who live, they are selected as one. I wish each one of you to become ambassadors of truth, but that you can become only when you live up to what you say. And there is more, but... In the beginning of this talk, Master Kripal quotes the great Master Tulsi Sahib, said a thing that uh, Santa Jeb Singh has also quoted a lot, that Tulsi Sahib said, if you are truthful, humble, and chaste, I will stand surety for you. I will guarantee you at the court of God. You will make it. I will guarantee it. And Master went into detail what is meant by being truthful, by being humble, and by being chaste. And I'd like to consider those three things briefly tonight in connection with what we've already said as the fundamental components of true living and of this very radical displacement that we were talking about last night also. Because continuingly, all of these things are not the normal way of the conventionally wise person. <coughs> They're not what we would normally be led to think is what we should do when we move out into the world. What is required is strange sometimes. It's not really strange. The strangeness, of course, comes from the perspective of the Master, the perspective of the Kingdom of God being that of love. And the perspective of the world of the fallen universe of Kao being that of justice. It's because of that difference in perspective, what the master takes for granted is very different from what the world takes for granted. And we, as his children, as his heirs, the heirs to his kingdom. If we live from the level of or the point of view of his way of looking at things, then we are living from the point of view of love. And that is what all this true living amounts to, basically. Not being afraid means loving. Okay? Perfect love casts out fear. And... If we're not afraid, then we are loving. If we are loving, we are not afraid. The two things don't coexist. Basically, that's why being afraid is the worst sin. Because as long as we're afraid, we can't love. And love, one aspect of love is trust. Okay, Trust not only in the Master who tells us these things, but trust in the fundamental core of the universe, okay? The master is one aspect of that. He is, we can say, the human embodiment of the love that created the universe. But that love that created the universe is in lots of other places too. It's also within us. And it is certainly accessible so that if we are trusting, we can get it. We can make use of it. This is why when I had the stroke 
and I was so hung up in uh, in fear, fear of the future. I I did lose faith. I mean, I would never have said that at the time. It wasn't. I didn't lose faith in any normal theological kind of way. I just lost my trust. And you know, I've said this before, and some of you have no doubt heard it. But the the word in the New Testament that is habitually translated in English as faith, much better translation is trust. Okay? For one thing, there's no verb for faith. The word is used both as a verb and as a noun. And what happens when translators translate it as faith, they translate the noun as faith, and the verb becomes believe. And believe is all wrong. Believe is what you do with your mind, right? But trust is what you do with your heart. That's what is being talked about. So we have, if we, trust is like the Master says, <coughs> excuse me, he gives you his little finger and you take hold of it. And that's how we get through life, right? And if, if we can do that, you see, to be able to take hold of his little finger and to keep hold of it is what is called the act of trust. So this is what is asked of us for our own, so that we can get the full benefit of that which we have been given. It was what was asked of me that time. Now the thing is, that I went into despair because I thought I was going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. And in actual fact, I was paralyzed about 20 more minutes. Now, I didn't know that when I went into despair, but that's just the point, you see. We don't know. And I'll tell you, from what the Master told me, I saw him just a few months later because that was the... Uh, we were scheduled to go to Ghana and to Italy that year. Judith ended up going to Ghana without me, with the Master's permission. But he said I was too, still too weak to go to Ghana, which was true probably. But Italy was a week later, and by the time Italy happened, he gave me permission to come there. It was also a shorter trip and all. I very much regretted not going to Ghana, but I was very happy to see him in Italy. And he talked to me at really quite a lot of length about this. And the point is that, um, you see, when we reject the gift that God is giving us, this is the fundamental loss of faith. If we translate it loss of trust, it may make more sense. You remember that Master Kripal Singh, in the last darshan that he ever gave in his physical life, he was obviously very sick. And someone who was there asked him, why don't you heal yourself? And he repeated the question, why don't you heal yourself? And then he said something like this, well, look here. If someone you love gives you something, will you not accept it? Will you not take it? And that was the thing. He was being given that gift of his final illness and so-called death by someone he loved. And naturally, he was going to take it. Of course, from his point of view, it no doubt looked different than it did from the disciples' point of view, too. But that's what is meant here. That's what is meant by that long passage from Gospel of Luke that we read. This is what the Masters teach. I mean, it's not what they teach that we have to do in order to be loved by God. We're already loved by God. It's not what we have to do in order to prove ourselves worthy. We can never prove ourselves worthy. It's what we have to do in order to get the full benefit of the connection with the kingdom of God that we have been given. And if we take advantage of it, we can get more than we ever dreamed possible.
Anyway, the three things that the Master emphasizes in this talk, these things that Tulsi Saab referred to, truthfulness, humility, and chastity. If we look at them, we will see and, and study the Master's definitions, we will see how this fits in with the displacement or the subversion of the angle of vision that we have been talking about. Okay? The Master defines truthfulness, being truthful. We think of it as not telling lies. But the fundamental definition from the point of view of the Masters is that your heart, tongue, and brain all agree. That we really are one. The word individual, you know, Master says in the Crown of Life, means undivided. That's the meaning of the word. An individual, we talk a lot about individual rights and individual this and that, responsibility. But truly, only someone who is totally unified is really an individual. Only an undivided person is an individual. And until then, we can only speak of some reactor, you know, someone who responds to stimuli and uh, is never quite ever caught up, always being buffeted about from this and that desire or fear or whatever. So that when that undividedness, that individuality is there, then we are truthful, okay? That is where truth comes. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this covers, you know, another place not very far away from where we read in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that you will be held accountable on the judgment day for every idle word that you speak. You know, what is this? Every idle word that we speak, every insult or slander, out of, uh, just out of fun? I mean, we're going to be held accountable? Yes, the answer is yes, we are, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be held against us. It's just that it's there. It is, it is a thing. There's nothing that doesn't count. Okay? The way that if we live truthfully, we will live in the light of that. We will understand that whatever we do, say, or think has an effect. This is what is called karma. And although what the Master ultimately teaches, as we saw last night, is the subversion of the law of karma, so that we become free from it, the liberation from the cycle of births and deaths, um, in fact, it is also very wise and prudent to agree with our officer while we're on the way with him, right? To not argue with the jailer, but rather to accept his terms while we're in his custody. This is very wise. And that's what understanding how the law of karma works and, and abiding by it as much as we can while we are working on uh, ways to become totally free from it. So, speaking, always only speaking when we have real knowledge. You know, it's, a friend of mine told me once that he was in India, and there were some people leaving, and they wanted a picture taken of them with the master. So they had this new, newfangled kind of camera. I'm not sure exactly what it was. It was now, this is now about 30 years ago. And uh, our master, Kripal Singh, looked around and he asked if anyone knew how to use that kind of camera, and my friend said that he did. And he, uh, he took it, and he went over and he started to take the picture, and he realized that he, he didn't know how to use that camera. He had thought he did. He hadn't, we would not normally call what he did lying, he thought he did, but he couldn't. So he tried desperately to learn how while he was standing there, and the master and 
the people were standing still posing on and on and on while he couldn't get the picture taken. So he's feeling very um, inadequate and, and really wants to come through. And the master leaves the group, walks over, takes the camera away from him and says to him very quietly, if you can't do it, don't say it. And he told me that was a great lesson. This is exactly what is meant by being truthful here, you see. If we can't do it, don't say it. If we live like that, always with that in mind, then the angle of vision begins to change and becomes, our angle of vision becomes that of the person who lives that way, namely the master. Similarly, humility and chastity too, all three of those things are not so much ways of behaving as they are the result of a way of seeing. If we see things, if we see the universe as it really is, we have to be humble. Because humility comes from seeing our real place in the ultimate scheme of things. Okay, which is not that of a worm or a, a piece of garbage or a nothing. It's that of a child of God whom God loves, but we see that there's a lot of other children of God that God loves too, and they're all important. That the entire universe matters. That we matter as a part of it, but not at the expense of other people or other forms of life for that matter. And we see that it's the seeing of that that makes us what the Master calls humble. Master Kripal has written very beautifully and very powerfully about humility as not being a forced sense of lowliness. Okay? It's not something we can talk ourselves into because we think we ought to. It comes from changing our way of seeing. If we really see, get a real glimpse of the universe, which can start by seeing the Master, really seeing the Master. The first time that I ever met Master Kripal Singh, I was overwhelmed with a sense of my own triviality. And that's really exactly what happened. I had always thought of myself as a very, well, I went back and forth. I mean, either I was a really great guy or I was a really horrible guy. I never was sort of a nothing guy. I was always wonderfully great or wonderfully awful. And it was, <coughs> I would have told you at the time that the second thing was being humble. Actually, of course, not being humble at all. It's being very egotistical to think of ourselves as, as a horrible sinner. But when I didn't feel like that, when I saw the Master for the first time, I just felt trivial. And I realized that this is what human beings are meant to be. This is the point of human nature, is to become like this man. And that I hadn't done that, even though I'd been initiated for five years at that point. I hadn't done that. So that's what um, the Master means when he talks about humility. And chastity, too, comes from a different way of seeing. A way of seeing in which all the human beings that we meet really are our brothers and sisters in God. You know, they are not objects of desire or objects of manipulation. They are not someone who is in our way or there for our convenience. They are most certainly not someone for us to fix it so that we can satisfy our desires on them. That's not what human beings are for. And it comes from a profound respect for the God working within each human being. And that's, if we think about it, it's the same 
Humility comes from the same thing. And truthfulness comes from the same thing. And not being afraid of what's going to happen next comes from the same thing. Not projecting the present into the future also comes from looking at the universe the same basic way. All of these are aspects or facets of seeing the power of God working underneath the surface. That's what, I mean, Maya, the essence of Maya, the Hindi Sanskrit word Maya that is usually translated illusion, is that what appear what is on the surface appears to be all that there is. Of course it's there, but there's something else there too. It's like being in a movie theater and assuming, as naive people will sometimes do, and children will sometimes do it, assuming that the moving picture that we see on the screen is the reality that we are seeing. Of course it's real in a way. I mean, it's really there. We can really see what we're seeing. There's no illusion about that. But what's really happening, oh, we, in order to see that, we have to turn around and look the other way. When we do that, we see a light coming through a hole. And if we follow it, follow that light to its source, we'll find a machine there with great big roll of film in it. And that's what's really happening in the sense that that's, without that, the other thing wouldn't be there. And it's something like that. You know, Plato in the Republic, written 500 years before Christ, um, invented a very elaborate metaphor called the, the parable of the cave, in which he invented something very much like a motion picture projector to describe how the world, the difference between the world seems to be and how it really is. He compared the whole world to people sitting in a um, in a cave watching a movie, basically. And if anyone leaves the cave and goes out, because first they're blinded by the light, this and that, but when they finally get accustomed to it, they go back in and try to tell them, it's very irritating to them. It doesn't make sense. What is this? And they have contests and trials based entirely on what they see on the screen in front of them. And anyone who comes in and says, no, no, this doesn't matter, this is not important. Look, there's a world out there, there's sunlight, there's grass growing, there's water. Come on out and see, I'll show you, come with me, take my hand, come. They get um, extremely annoyed at him. And, Socrates says, may even put him to death, which we know has indeed happened to people who have come and said exactly that. So, this is the, the question of trust in an angle of vision and of love, all of which are connected, of recognizing that the Master does show us the reality beneath the surface, this is what he comes to do, that that reality can be described in many ways, but the most basic way is probably to call it love, that that love is what the universe was created out of, and that ultimately it is also created for love, so that love can manifest in it. That yes, it's true, the part of it, the part that we happen to be living in right now, doesn't seem like there's that much love there, but that is because we have not looked beneath the surface. If we look beneath the surface, go within, as the Master says, we find that it is there. That is what he comes down to show us and to do. He shows us by doing it himself, by living a life of love,
by acting always from the point of view of love, by treating us as though we really are manifestations of love, even if we never acted like that in our lives once. He still treats us as though we were, because he knows that by treating us that way, you will make it possible for the love that really is there to manifest itself. And this is what the Master is promising us. This is what we have at our disposal. We can do this. We can take it. We can live by it. We can share it with others. Master Kripal says, that if you give love, do you find that you have less love in your heart? On the contrary, you are conscious of an ever greater power of love. That's the beautiful thing about it. The more we love, the more love we have to love with. Hmm? But of course, as Master also says, this has been said by Sawan Singh, Kripal Singh, and Ajayb Singh have all said this, that the love is no easy thing, is not, we use the word cheaply, but what is required really is the revolutionizing of the thought pattern. The, we, in the, the image that the masters use, quoting Kabir, a lot of people don't like this image. They find it very troubling. If we want to come to the wonderland of love, we have to carry our head on our palm as an offering. What does that mean? Does it mean that the master is, is a bloody butcher who wants to kill us? I mean, obviously not, but that is the content of the emotional reaction to that image often is there. It's just that whatever we think we care most about, we have to, the revolutionizing of the thought pattern may require, doesn't mean that it does require, but it may require at some point that we be willing to give up even that so that we can find what is lying that has always been drowned out by the things that we care so much about in this worldly environment. So, Master loves us. I would say that if we remember, if we remember that he has promised us the kingdom and that we will get no matter what. We will get it. It's not that any of us can lose. Okay? It's just that we may get it easier and quicker and better better from the point of view of our own feelings of satisfaction along the way. And at less cost to the Master if we obey his commandments and do our very best. But we should never think, you know, it's, it's like people get discouraged, they give up. And I've also done this. I can never blame anybody for doing that because sometimes it seems like it's a lot of hard work and people will ask the master questions like, is there joy on this path? I'm sure a question that that really must be difficult for him to to fit into the way that things seem to him from his point of view. What else is there on this path, you see? There's nothing else but joy. But we can feel like there's a lot of hard work and so forth. And this again is a is the result of misplacing the angle of vision so that we are looking at as though we are making it happen. 
You know, it's true that we can, that our actions certainly affect the way things seem to us. But if we go far enough into it, the masters have said very plainly, you know, that we see that it is not we that are doing it, it is him that's doing it. It's not we that are meditating, he is making us meditate. We know from the initiation instructions that the master drags us up. Hey, that's what's really happening. Most of the time we can't see it that way, but sometimes we can. But whether we can see it or not, that's what's really happening. He is dragging us up. He is making it work. What we do is get out of his way. The more we can, the more easily, the more completely we get out of his way, the easier it is for him to work. The easier it is for him to work, the more satisfaction we have in what happens. But if we can't get out of his way, he's still going to drag us. It's just that we're going to be interfering with the process, and as long as that happens, it will seem to us that nothing much is going on. But it doesn't mean that it isn't going on. And growth is something that occurs whether we are aware of it or not also. I remember once I went to India, Master Kripal Singh's lifetime. I went over very full of myself, okay, very complacent. I was very, my last trip had been absolutely gorgeous and I had loved it, absolutely loved it. And I had gone home full of confidence and power full of the Master's love, and I was really going to make everything happen right. I was going to do it, and I was, of course, uh, entrusted with Sant Bani Ashram at this point, and it did. Things worked very well after that, that trip before. I came home, and the ashram grew exponentially began growing as soon as I got back and just people started coming in droves. I mean, I had to start a, a special initiation class. There were so many people coming, I couldn't possibly deal with them adequately individually. Anyway, I was very pleased with myself because of all this. I took credit all over the place, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't have said that at the time. I wouldn't have thought that I had done that. And I went back to India feeling very complacent and, oh, this is going to be a great trip, just like that one. And it wasn't like that at all. When I got there, it was very obvious to me that, that I had done everything wrong. And I was in a very bad place from the point of view of, of my growth and this and that. And I wept. You know, I would sit, I would sit in meditation seven hours a day I was in a room with many other people, and I couldn't talk with them. I was overwhelmed with this sense of failure and despair and discouragement. I would sit on the bed with a with a um, shawl over my head, and I would be in meditation, but I would also be weeping. And I couldn't believe how wrong I had been. I was just drowning in the sense of my own wrongness. Anyway, I had an interview with the Master, and I told him, I apologize, star right eyes, I, I, I apologize for having totally goofed and, and not done what you told me to do and not having made the best use of what you gave me last time, which was a lot, and I apologize for that, and I'm sorry that I haven't made progress. And he just looked at me. You know, Master Kripal Singh had a way of just sort of, he would rest his head on his hand and he would look at you very, uh, very, I don't know what the word is. It was, it was not unpleasant, but you did feel like you were being weighed in, in some kind of cosmic scale. And he looked at me like that and he said, um, he said, you've made progress. He said, man can't always tell. You don't worry about it. Don't think like that. 
just do your best. And it was like he took a huge load off me. And I realized that, um, that whether I had made progress or not, that to think that you haven't made progress is maybe as bad as to think that you have. That um, the point is to just take one step at a time, live in the living present, don't worry about tomorrow, all those things that Jesus said in the section we read. Anyway, uh, you know, in the Gospel of Thomas, there is a parable which some people don't like, and I think myself that it's a mis misunderstanding of it when they don't like it. But it's a parable about a woman who bought a bag of flour. She doesn't know there's a hole in it. So she hoists the bag on her head and she takes it home. When she gets there, it's all gone. The bag is empty. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like that. Okay, so what does he mean? You know, it's like, do you mean it's like a bad joke? You know, that, 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 that it's a, the ultimate downer, that we think we're going to be getting a full bag of something, <laughs> actually getting nothing? Obviously not. At least to me it seems obviously not. But I think it means what Master was said when he said that man can't always tell. Right? The point is that when we get there, it's like it's been done whether or not it seemed like it was being done on the way. The flower is coming out of the bag regardless of our efforts. We are walking along doing this, doing that, but the flower keeps dropping out of the bag. When the bag is totally empty, it's like that's when the kingdom of God is obtained. Once, again about 30 years ago, um, there was a forest fire near St. Bani Ashram in New Hampshire, a very bad one in the next uh, farm over actually. and. It was a very wooded place, and uh, everybody in town was fighting it, and uh, I was also fighting it. And I was working in a section of the woods with two other people. One was a young boy, and the other was an initiate older man who just um, uh, left the body a short while ago, Gerald Boyce, some of you may know him, who was one of my very best friends in life and uh, one of the people who was most helpful in founding the ashram and, and the work in New Hampshire, getting it going. Gerald was uh, somewhat older than I was by about uh, 25 years. Yeah, he was 25 years older than me. But this was 30 years ago, so he was, he was not terrible. He was younger then than I am now. I was just a young guy. Anyway, uh, Judith and other people at the ashram had been evacuated because everybody up in that end of town had to leave. And it really looked as though the fire was was heading in. And um, Gerald and the young man and I were working, the three of us, in this one section. And it was like we couldn't get ahead of the fire. I've, if any of you have fought a forest fire, you know, you may know that feeling. It's, it's like you can't do it, but you just keep doing it anyway. You work and work and work, and you hope that that it'll um, it will uh, get that something will be accomplished. But it doesn't seem you, there's no time to reflect. You just you're shoveling. You're just, pumping water, whatever you're doing, you just got to keep doing it. And we were working and working and working and we weren't, weren't thinking and we weren't talking. We were just absolutely involved in what we were doing. And a guy came by inspecting uh, one of the firemen, professional, not professional, there weren't any, but one of the volunteer firemen of the town. And he said, hey, you guys have done a good job. Uh, it's all contained here. 
I said, huh? And Gerald and I looked at each other and we looked around and fire was contained. How did it happen? I don't know. We didn't know. We had done it, yeah. But somehow or other, we had done it without being aware that it was happening. And there's a sense in which this is the ultimate truth about the kingdom of God and how it comes in any individual's life is that it doesn't come by, this is what when Jesus says, won't come by saying, look, here it is or there it is. This is what he's getting at. You see, it doesn't come by calculation or by preparation or like that. It comes from doing your best on the one hand and not worrying about it on the other. And it happens, you know, suddenly there it is. Something is there that wasn't there before and it's what we wanted all along to be there. That fire, by the way, not, I mean, our section that we were working on, which was substantial, and I, I was really actually quite astonished at the whole thing. Um, just astonished at, at how that worked out. But the fire as a whole did not burn the ashram down. Uh, the wind shifted at a certain point and uh, the fire uh, moved in a different direction and ultimately burned itself out. And uh, people were saying, even people who were not connected with the ashram, that it was a miracle. The term was being used by firemen and people who normally would not use such a word easily. Uh, so there was a lot of grace that day. But that's, you know, a great deal it's just like in meditation, when we meditate and we're constantly aware of ourselves meditating, we can't get anywhere. You know, this is why when the Master says, don't do the work of an overseer, this is what he's talking about. It's the same way with that. It works in every aspect of the path, in every way. The angle of vision has to shift, but we can't be consciously, calculatedly, self-consciously aware of how that happens or then it doesn't happen. Just like the bag of flour emptying itself out while the woman carries it home. Um, so our ego, our sense of, of fallen self, okay, it empties itself out while the master carries us home. And when we get there, he sets us down and we are empty. You know, and the kingdom of God has come. It's like that. All right. Well, I guess that's what I have to say for tonight. I, I do appreciate his love and his willingness to work with us all and to carry us on his heads while our ego empties out and I'm grateful for all that.